Take a network break, get yourself a virtual donut, and join us as we do our weekly review and analysis of tech news with a little bit of snark added for flavor. We're sponsored in part today by Palo Alto Networks. You can securely enable remote workforce with Palo Alto Networks Prisma Access. It's cloud-delivered security to protect all users and applications while ensuring an exceptional experience. You can get a virtual test drive at paloaltonetworks.com slash resources slash test dash drives. And we'll tell you more about that in the middle of the show. And stay tuned after the news. We've got a sponsored Tech Bytes conversation with Fortinet. We're going to hear from Fortinet customer Batteries Plus about an SD-WAN and SD-Branch deployment at their branch locations with Fortinet. The one thing that stood out about that recording was that the CIO who's in charge, basically, uh, he, he made a point that actually he now sleeps at night because he's got a sassy solution taking care of his retail network for the first time. He feels yes. like he's in control. More visibility, easier to deploy. Yes. It was funny. It was just like, I said, do you actually, you actually looked amazingly relaxed. He said, yes, now I am. Which is fun. And put that in the marketing materials. Yeah, I, think, yeah, I think so. All right, let's uh, kick it off with an FU from a listener. This is regarding our conversation last week about semiconductor fabrication plants in the Arizona desert. And it seems like water scarcity could be a manufacturing constraint. He notes that there's actually a massive nuclear power plant in Arizona that uses wastewater from Phoenix where they actually treat it first and it can be used for uh, operations like running the nuclear plant. So presumably similar technique could be used uh, to repurpose wastewater for semiconductor manufacturing. Yeah. Well, I didn't think that wastewater repurposing for nuclear was a thing, but obviously this is something that they've been able to do. And so maybe access to water makes sense if you've got access to that. And so Intel might be leveraging those techniques in addition to the recycling that we talked about before. So they take the water, recycle it, and then run it back through the plant. And then uh, the the follow-up goes on to say, uh, and also the power company that serves the Intel Fab Salt River project is well known for making deals with large manufacturers in sourcing renewable and clean power sources. A similar deal was made with Apple when they plant, planted manufacture types of glass in Arizona. Uh, so what they're saying there is that there is a number of uh, sources in Arizona, probably solar related, mm-hmm. would be the guess, um, as a renewable and, and clean energy source. And so you can actually power the plant on the basis that there's a nuclear power plant and then also solar, which would be well into the um, mix for carbon-free energy, both meet that requirement. Right. And water is then solved by recycling it and or using wastewater from urban areas. So there you go. Maybe there is a good reason. Yeah, I would assume, you know, obviously they need lots of water, but they also do need lots of power. And if I don't know where the uh, nuclear plant is located, but if they can draw power from that, that's usually a reliable source, which may also be a factor in locating this plant there. Yeah. And thanks so much to the people giving us the feedback because um, for some of the things that we talk on the show, no matter how much research you do, you can't find them. And telling us that to sort of know so that we know is really very helpful. So thanks very much to you and the audience for coming back to us and giving us that information. Yep. And we're always open to comments, feedback, corrections, whatever you've got. You can uh, hit us up at packetpushers.net slash FU and we love to hear from you. Sure do. All right, let's dive into some tech news. First, the IEEE's 802.3 CU standard, which, quote, enables speeds of 100 gigabits per second and 400 gig on single mode optical fiber per wavelength, has been finalized. And the goal is to make uh, 100 gig Ethernet cheaper and more power efficient using single fiber optics. Yeah, there's a bunch of stuff here. Um, It's really difficult to read these announcements. They don't publish them very clearly, and they tend to get the RSS feed on the Ethernet Alliance website. It's kind of broken. So I had to spend a bit of time hunting around to find the details. And at the end of the day, as usual, the Ethernet, the IEEE committee and the Ethernet Alliance, the details just aren't there. 
So basically all we know is what's published from the Precy. Uh, the Ethernet Alliance is now publishing the final version of the 802.3 CU standards, which enables speeds of 100 gigabits per second and 400 gigabits per second on a single mode optical fiber per wavelength. And the reason that that's important is today, most of the fibers are running at 50 gigs and there's actually a wave division multiplexer. So for a 100 gig signal, you have 250s and you need a DWDM in the SFP to transmit the signal. And for 400 gigs, obviously there's eight by. And by shifting up to 100 gigabit line rates, you now don't need a, a, a WDM transceiver in the SFP, although you do need a much more high quality signal discriminator to be able to pick up the signal and deserialize it. You're talking about much higher data rate than you are like the 50 gig data rate, decoding that and deserializing it. It's very different to decoding at 100. And obviously 400 gigabits per second is four by. If there's other benefits in there, little hard for me to know whether there's range extensions or shortages. Uh, the other part that they announced is that they're getting closer to enabling the same 100 gigabit per second data rate on electrical interfaces and supporting development of higher density or lower cost electrical interfaces for 100, 200, and 400. So this is 802IEEE802.3CK, which apparently, they, given that it's electrical, means on copper. And they're going to find a way to run 100 gigabit per second line rate uh, signaling rates on copper cabling, which was once thought impossible. They, I thought the IEEE, uh, last time I was able to put, spend time on the website, they had discontinued the research on the basis that it was impractical. So Ethernet marches on. Apparently, there is no end for Ethernet. You can keep squeezing that stone and finding blood inside. How's that? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> All right, moving on. Uh, Gigamon, they've announced a new network detection and response or NDR offering. It's called Threat Insight Guided SaaS NDR. It's aimed at security operation centers. And essentially, it's a SaaS-based NDR service, but it also bundles in some human assistance. So that is, if your SOC team detects an attack and is working through an incident, they can call Gigamon and get on the phone with what they call a technical success manager. This is an actual human trained in incident response. They can help answer questions, analyze attack behaviors, and try to provide context to help your SOC team respond better. This is an interesting approach. It's a little, I, I found the, you got the briefing, so maybe you'll understand it better than I did, but mm -hmm. I found this a little opaque in the sense that, is it a combination of artificial intelligence, machine learning, automation, or is it literally a callback to, to an expert to help you out and walk you through it's a little of both. I mean, they'll always, it's, it's a SaaS service. So you're sending metadata from your organization up into the cloud and they're doing all the typical analysis. And then you're supposed to be watching it and go, oh, that doesn't look right. Uh, and then start your incident response. And then you can also call Gigamon and get a human on the phone. So it's a combination of uh, so a SaaS service plus a little human touch. And it's they're, they're very clear, this is not a managed service. It's up to your SOC team to figure out that something bad is happening. But once mm -hmm. your SOC team figures it out, you can get on the phone and get some help. It's interesting because one of the things we're seeing in the industry is that uh, employers are whining about the fact that there's nobody for them to hire. Mm -hmm. And the irony of the fact that they're not paying very much to hire them and or not training them. <laughs> Seems to go over their heads. <laughs> yeah. Let's just keep going. Let's pretend that that's obviously not the cause. But the flip side here is that that does leave a gap in the market on the basis that the people you're employing in these roles are not skilled or experienced have no training and do not have the necessary knowledge, then vendors are moving into the market to say, well, if they're no good, why don't you just buy a service to make them to use what you've got at the best possible? Is that 
Yeah, to me, it straddles an interesting ground between having to set up and operate your own NDR and your own SOC team and a full managed services where you just outsource the whole caboodle to somebody else. This sort of sits in the middle where you're getting that SaaS element, so you don't have to worry about setting up and tuning the NDR system. And you also get a little bit of help. You can call somebody on the phone, but you're still running a SOC team yourself and responsible for how you handle the incident. So it's an interesting little twist. It's not a managed service and it's not leaving you to your own devices. It is really difficult for companies who are running their own, you know, security teams, especially if you've only got, say, two or three, you know, less than a dozen people. Right. Having some sort of third party to help you through that and take away that decision making in a vacuum sort of thing. It's no substitute for training and experience, of course. But Of course. No. <laughs> that said, uh, this might be the second best thing. So, you know, where there's a gap in the market there's, and there's money. Uh, this product fits that sort of model. I think that's fine. Giga One, of course, has its own equipment, which does all the network tapping, and they have their own threat detection service. And then going that step further actually moves more, much more into that day two operational loop. So yeah, logical. And I, and, and, mm. yeah, I asked them, do I have to have the full Gigamon kit, uh, their entire you know network tap and detection system to use this? And they said, not at all. Uh, if you have it, that's great. They can essentially just flip a switch on that service to start collecting the metadata. But if you don't have it, they'll also you can just get um, some software sensors that you do plug into a tap or span port, uh, and they'll collect the metadata that way. So you don't have to be all full blown in on on the Gigamon fabric uh, to take advantage of this. Fair enough. All right, moving on. Uh, so our last story was not about a managed service. This story is uh, US ISPs and telcos are getting into SASE via managed service offerings with partners, including Palo Alto Networks, Versa, and Zscaler. And just a reminder, SASE is the secure access service edge. It's the latest hotness. It's cloud-delivered security. It includes things like next-gen firewalls, UTM, web security, and more. Uh, so first up, AT&T is doing a partnership with Palo Alto Networks, where AT&T is going to manage Palo Alto's Prisma access as a service. The deal also includes SD-WAN. Comcast has also announced a partnership with Versa Networks for a SaaS offering, and Comcast already has a partnership with Palo Alto. And Verizon also recently got into the game. They're offering a managed SASE service deal with Versa Networks and Zscaler. And all of that is really interesting in lots of different ways. So the, the idea of a managed service via routers at the edge of the network is going away. And we're seeing, for obvious reasons, for the same reason that most enterprises are replacing their private networks with routers with SD-WAN solutions over the public WAN by and large. Some of them are still using MPLS, but that's fine. Um, And these telcos still believe that they've got the ability to offer managed services to customers. Once you've got a SASE solution, you really don't need somebody else to run it for you. It's just not that hard. (laughs) So it is kind of a bit unusual. That, I mean, we saw the, when SD-WAN came out, we saw the telcos and ISPs do the exact same thing, trot out a managed SD-WAN service. And I was sort of scratch my head, like, isn't the whole point of SD-WAN that it's easy to set up and operate? And of course, maybe the vendors have overstated the ease of that. Um, Well, I've said before that the the point is, is that that when you own a SASE and an SD-WAN type solution, the point is that you're constantly reconfiguring it and reconfiguring it and optimizing it. mm -hmm. And that is not what um, telcos want when you have a managed service, what you want is to deploy it and then do nothing to it for right. the next 10 years. Yes. Maximize your revenue, maximize your profits, do no work. Routers were well suited for that. I'm not sure that SASE and SD-WAN fits that model. Um, so it is interesting. Um, what is notable about this perhaps is that Cisco is missing from these core customers. Comcast, AT&T and Verizon are all US telcos. And you might've thought at least one of them would have chosen a Cisco solution. Did you see that? Did you notice that? <laughs> 
It is kind of a glaring uh, leave out, although I will say it's because I feel like Cisco, does. while they're talking about having a SASE solution, essentially what they've got are all the pieces and parts and they haven't really fully integrated it yet. And I can imagine, you know, an AT&T or Verizon looking at it and going, oh, we'll wait. We'll wait till you get all your act together. Yeah, I will go that. That would that would be my sort of analysis there. Cisco's got its SD-WAN. It's got its umbrella portfolio. But those are all fractured. The SD-WAN is partly Viptela or this router or that device. And Umbrella is a half a dozen services. And when you try to integrate them together, you actually have to go and buy multiple boxes. Whereas Palo Alto, Versa and Zscaler, they are all either in the cloud or they support virtual functions. So Versa particularly allows you to put any brand of firewall in there. So if you've got a particular passion around a a particular brand of firewall, a checkpoint or whatever, you can put that on top and Versa will give you a way to move forward on that. And Palo Alto um, also does the same thing. They have the virtual cloud blade idea where they can host blades at various places, either in the cloud or in some cases down on the devices. And um, whereas so Cisco is to a large extent well behind on the SD-WAN if you're looking at it from that point of view. In terms of the SD-WAN functionality, sort of four or five years behind most of its competitors, and I'm sure it's working hard to catch up. Yep. So if you're, I guess, a lean IT shop and sassy sounds good to you, but you don't think you can handle it yourself, you've got some people who are ready to take your money. All right, a quick break to tell you about our sponsor today, Palo Alto Networks. As we continue to confront the pandemic, most businesses are understanding that remote, flexible, or distributed working environments are going to be the new normal. Uh, But moving to a predominantly remote workforce puts a lot of pressure on your legacy networking and security infrastructures. Many organizations are figuring out the limitations of their current architectures, including scalability, security, and performance. Palo Alto Networks want to help you scale your remote workforces without compromise. You can securely enable your workforce, remote or otherwise, with Palo Alto Networks cloud-delivered security. Prisma Access consolidates multiple point products into a single converged cloud-delivered platform, protecting all users and application traffic with best-in-class security while ensuring an exceptional user experience. You can experience Prisma Access cloud-delivered security now when you sign up for a virtual ultimate test drive, and you can sign up at paloaltonetworks.com slash resources slash test test drives. That's paloaltonetworks.com slash resources slash test dash drives. And we'll have that link in the show notes. You want to go check it out. Back to the news, IBM, they've completed their acquisition of Turbonomic. IBM announced the $1.5 billion deal back in April. Turbonomic makes software to help companies optimize private and public cloud infrastructure to avoid over and under provisioning. Yeah, Turbonomic's been around for a very long time doing this, picking away at it in its own way. And the key part about the cloud is that the lack of control you've got over spend, it's far too simple for anyone to instantiate new services, new VMs, to use software of any sort. So what you really want is some sort of tooling to add on top of the cloud because the cloud doesn't want to give you tooling to stop that. They want you to waste as much money as possible as a rule. So there's a whole market for software that fixes up that gap. And Turbonomic, IBM picking that up, hopefully they can make that money back. Yeah, I mean, Turbonomic also seems like it's getting into application performance monitoring and network performance monitoring. So they're expanding Mm -hmm. their portfolio. And I think for IBM, it helps tell them a story about controlling cloud spend. Uh, It also gives them a competitive uh, play against like Cisco's AppDynamics and other APM competitors. Well, one of the biggest costs in any uh, public cloud bill is usually the networking cost, particularly for AWS, who has very high pricing for uh, bandwidth consumption per gigabyte. Mm-hmm. And having network monitoring and network visibility tools is critical to actually getting that result. So, you know, the idea that you add some network visibility or, you know, monitoring tools to the service is kind of like, well, yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that makes sense. 
Yes, and cloud spend is a perpetual issue. So tools like Turbonomic are there to help you say, why do we have that instance size? We're only using fifty percent right. of it. Yeah, and as customers move on to other, you know, on to off-prem clouds for various reasons, and then discover they've lost control of budgeting spend, they might have got velocity or some other business feature that they wanted, but equally, when they've lost business control and blow out the budget, they tend to go, "Oh, how do I fix this?" And that's where tools like this come in. Yeah. And just as a point of comparison, Cisco paid almost $4 billion for App Dynamics back in 2017. So uh, IBM picking up Turbonomics for less than half of that, pretty good deal. Yeah. App Dynamics is slightly different. It, it does a lot of in-app monitoring and stuff. So. Yes. It's got other uses. Yeah. 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 Not exactly horses for courses, but you know. Not quite, yeah. Uh, there's an article in ZDNet raising the specter of counterfeit semiconductors sneaking into the supply chain due to global shortage. And the article doesn't actually cite any evidence of counterfeits flooding the market, but it's sort of uh, quoting several industry observers who are raising the flag. Yeah, well, this is a natural response. Whenever there's a shortage, um, <laughs> same as what we talked about before, whenever there's a gap in the market, somebody will turn up to fill it in. <laughs> um, the obvious thing that's happening here is that if there's a component shortage of supply, the temptation in vendor supply chains is that they might, you know, slip a little. Do you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. take some liberties and say, well, I really, really need some of these and there's none available from my normal sources. Maybe, oh, look, someone here's got some and maybe they buy them or something. So you end up with an interesting situation there where they can creep into the supply chain. We've seen this show up sometimes in our real products uh, as a line of faulty chips in a specific device or for example, power supplies, mm-hmm. which have a known, because sometimes the vendors make like 50,000 or 100,000 units. And if there's a component in there that is substandard or counterfeit, you'll find that all that line is faulty. And that is partly why um, organizations like Cisco in particular has this really heavy investment in its supply chain. Right. And it often wins awards for its supply chain management. And that includes the ability to go out and audit. And, and HP and Dell also do this to audit the manufacturing and make sure that the people who are building their components are not um, adopting less than, uh, shall we say, less than casual attitudes towards customers on the other side of the world. Yeah, it seems like what this article is sort of raising the flag about is um, folks working with independent or third-party distributors. I think the Cisco's, the HPE's, the Dell's of the world have very robust mechanisms in place to assure the quality of their supply chain components. But when you're dealing with, say, a manufacturing company, an automotive company, healthcare equipment manufacturer, and they're getting pressure to get products out the door, maybe they'll, if some third party mm-hmm. supplier shows up and is like, hey, by the way, I just happened to find a pallet of all these devices. Are you interested? Yeah. That's how, that's how things get in. Yeah. They might put a chip in that's not rated for 60 degrees. It might only be rated for 45 degrees or something like that. Right. Or so, the, the article is also talking about how some nefarious suppliers may go harvest old uh, chips or components from discarded materials and kind of dust them off and rebadge them and repurpose them as new. Yeah, and they don't have the same lifetime as new manufacturers. Um, and this is probably worthwhile noting that the value of Whitebox is not buying no-name brand cheap product. The value in Whitebox, as we talk about it generally, is in you have choices in software and often about low-cost software. Or if you lock into, a, if you make an initial purchase on uh, with a vendor on their SD-WAN, SD-Campus, SD-WAN solution, SD-Data Center, then... Uh, if you decide, if that software doesn't seem to work out, you can switch to somebody else's software and that's what you want with white box. And so you don't have to cheap out on hardware when most of the cost these days is actually not 
in the switch and the SFPs. Uh-huh. It's in the software that sits over the top, especially with all this subscription licensing and stuff. White box is something you should be considering from that perspective, not in terms of getting cheap hardware or, or whatever. All right, moving on. Uh, revenues and data center switching, they were up 14% year over the year for the first quarter of 2021. That's according to a market report from the Del Oro Group. And Del Oro says gross growth was healthy across all sectors, including large enterprise telcos and cloud service providers. Yeah, surprising in a way. You wouldn't have thought that you know, Ethernet ports would have searched, but there's a lot of it. I think what the report did highlight is that 2,500 gig and 400 gig was more than 60% of data switch port shipments mm-hmm. in the first quarter of 21. So basically, I would suggest here that this is mostly the colos and the cloud companies, especially the tier two, tier three, as well as the tier one, of course, uh, scaling up their Ethernet rollouts. And I don't, although they said that all markets, including the enterprise, grew, I would be a bit surprised if enterprise was a massive growth. But then, you know, we can't see the report, but the link is there. Maybe you're a. Uh, yeah, my speculation is that there may in the enterprise have been uh, an upgrade from 10 and 40 gig to the 25100. Uh, so maybe that's where that's coming from in the large enterprise. But again, yeah, it's behind the paywall. The enterprise, so most see. of them are still getting to 10, not to 25 or 50 or 100. So. We shall see. Uh, also, Arista, Huawei, and H3C posted significant revenue gains in the quarter, according to Del Oro. So happy news for them. Mm-hmm. Which follows along with the and our summary or our sense of the analysis over the last year. All right, our last story for this episode, uh, apparently an underwater avalanche broke two subsea telecom cables off the coast of West Africa earlier this year. Um, obviously, folks found out about it because communication stopped, but scientists have also been placing sensors on the seabed floor to detect these avalanches or turbidity currents, as they are called in the technical parlance. Yeah, I picked this up as a bit of a sort of the last article for the show. Underwater avalanche is not Something like news. <laughs> I was not aware of underwater <laughs> avalanches. Uh, but apparently the internet can be taken down by uh, underwater avalanches. And this one went on for two days, which uh, and once, the, once the avalanche actually started, it took two days for the, the uh, earth or the sand or the sediment on the ocean floor to move into a trench. And they uh, actually predicted that it was coming and put sensors down so they could know about it. And uh, the article on the BBC website, if you want to go and have a look at it, said the event would have gone unrecorded were it not for the fact that the slide broke two submarine telecommunication tables, slowing the internet and other data traffic between Nigeria and South Africa. So it's these types of unpredictable events that do cause the internet. And we've talked to plenty of suppliers over the years who now monitor the internet so that they can tell you when something's gone wrong. Right. And I'm sort of drawing this to your attention on the assumption that monitoring the internet is probably a viable part where are the backbones? Is there an outage in the backbone? I just need to know because it might be impacting my service. These are the sorts of events that can impact your SD-WAN if you're running over the public WAN. Yeah. And you also found a link to a preprint of a, an academic paper talking about these sensor arrays uh, that were deployed in the ocean to help detect things like turbidity currents, which will affect submarine cables. However, cable breaking turbidity currents, which is apparently the word for underwater avalanche, if you want to sound intelligent at parties. So, <laughs> however, cable breaking turbidity currents that run out into the deep ocean were poorly understood and thus hard to predict as there were no detailed measurements from these flows in action. Here we present the first detailed measurement from such cable breaking flows using more. T- anyway, you can go and re- read the article if you would like to know more about installing cables in the seabed and what might cause them to go out. I'm going to try to find a way to incorporate turbidity currents into my conversation. I like that. That's right. You'll be the life of the party. There, <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> Tell us more. 
Yes. <laughs> Did you know that an underwater avalanche is actually known as a turbidity current? Gosh. Wow. You will be the are. man. All right. Well, that wraps up our news. Please, please stay tuned for our sponsored Tech Bytes conversation with Fortinet customer Batteries Plus. We'll be talking to them about their SD-WAN and SD-Branch rollout. That's coming right up. Welcome to the Tech Bytes podcast from the Packet Pushes. Today, we're talking to a Fortinet customer, Batteries Plus, a retailer that specializes in batteries, charges, and lighting about its SD-WAN and SD-Branch deployments. We're joined by Jason Thielen, infrastructure architect at Batteries Plus, and Courtney Radke, she's CISO for retail at Fortinet. And of course, Fortinet is our sponsor for our episode, thanks to them. So Jason and Courtney, welcome to the podcast. Let's start with you, Jason. You guys kind of sell batteries of all kinds. And how many retail locations do you have? We have over 700 locations today and we're growing. We do sell just about every kind of battery you can imagine. And we are the nation's leading needs-based destination for retailer for batteries. So you've got 700 branches and growing. So you've just got more and more stores and I assume some sort of warehousing functionality set up as well. If you're distributing batteries in that sort of volume, you were in the market for SD-WAN or were you looking to upgrade the company's firewalls? What led you to the Fortinet SD-WAN? So in the past, we used a less sophisticated firewall. Um, it led to a lot of downtime. We didn't have a automated way to fail over to a secondary connection. And if a store's primary internet connection didn't go down, it was usually several minutes for them to connect an LTE backup device, call into the help desk, get their VPN password reset, et cetera, et cetera. And they would lose sales or customers would walk out the door in the meantime. So Right. So it was that IPSEC VPN over the public WAN by and large, or were we using dedicated MPLS in places or a mixture? Over time, it evolved. Um, we were using dedicated connections, and that led to IPSEC VPN connections, and none of them were really favorable compared to where we are today. Obviously, by the fact that you bought a Fortinet SD-WAN solution, it wasn't working for you, right? So is that what drove the need for SD-WAN, just simply that IPSEC VPN wasn't cutting it? The devices weren't all that? That's correct. I mean, today we have stores fail over seamlessly between their primary uh, connection to their cellular backup. And most times they don't even realize that um, the switch has been made. So, or one circuit's gone down and the other one's fully picked up the load. So it's been fabulous. Are you using just, you know, one primary circuit and one backup? Or are you also load balancing across two live links? We use two live circuits, so we use a terrestrial circuit and LTE circuit in combination, but we, we have the SD-WAN almost to the point where it's a more of a backup to a cellular connection. So when we are going, you know, when we're going from transaction to transaction in a store, we might be using a fraction of the LTE and a majority of the terrestrial connection, you know, really kind of leverage more for a backup, but, you know, it is there. We still see... Mm intermittent usage at stores, but it's very... So the LTE is the backup and you want to use the landlines as a primary by and large. Some people have said that that sounds or feels really difficult using LTE. Like how do you have so many LTE connections? Have you struggled with the mechanics, like the business process of having an LTE service at 700 stores or hundreds of stores? No, not at all. Um, we've got really good partners. The technology is great as we're getting near 5G speeds. You know, we're entertaining upgrading those cellular modems to faster modems or modems mm. that can handle 5G. And as I said, in a lot of cases, 
the cellular connection is sufficient to process, you know, store transactions. So I want to, before we move on, Jason, I just wanted to ask you about the operational side. A lot of people who buy SD-WANs and deploy SD-WANs say how how the operations of their network has changed. Have you got a similar sort of story there? We do. Our our operations have changed uh, dramatically. We we no longer dread the day our trust rail connections go down. We have more seamless failovers, and we have tremendous visibility into that failover or you know usage because of the Fortinet, where we didn't have that before. We you know it was just a blind spot. So Courtney. What's the broader retail picture? You're actually a product manager for the retail space, and I think SD-WAN is almost custom-built for the retail market. So has the pandemic affected the SD-WAN market one way or the other, and what is the broader retail market for SD-WAN from Fortinet's point of view? So, so retail is all about that experience, and so I think SD-WAN, as you said, is, is purpose-built to protect and enable that experience. And, and I think you know, I came from retail, and oftentimes I understood that you know five years ago if I was offline – uh, or I didn't have robust applications on the roadmap, I, I was probably only missing out like on a potential portion of, of customers and sales if my connectivity was down. But that's really not been the case for quite some time. And, yeah. you know, over the last few years and, and definitely over the last 12 months, we've seen you know, SD-WAN really go from a, a nice to have to a have to have it. It's because of that increased need to, to rapidly adapt, to adapt the business and, and support that always on customer experience. One of the big features about SD-WAN for retail, and we've talked to lots of people here on Packet Pushers about this, is the ability to open up stores and close stores very quickly mm-hmm. because you don't have to wait six weeks or 12 weeks for circuit provisioning. You can pop it in. And Jason alluded to the fact that LTE works just fine. Absolutely. I mean, it's really creating that flexibility in plug in whatever circuit you want. And mm-hmm. it's going to ride on that backbone of SD-WAN to make sure that it's supporting that always on experience, that it's supporting those SLAs that your customer expects. Because SD-WAN you know, is all about creating that transparency. They sh- a customer should never know that you failed over to a backup circuit. You shouldn't be sacrificing you know, performance. You shouldn't be sacrificing uh, security or anything else mm-hmm. when you fail over to a backup. It's not a backup anymore. It's now, you're essentially, it's an always on experience and that's what SD-WAN is really supporting. Now, what about the security? We've seen a lot of retail companies have to comply with PCI mm-hmm. legislation and also privacy information because they're taking mm-hmm. customers' personal data. Are you able to convince retailers that you've got that in hand? Are, are the SD-WAN appliances got the security features they need? Hopefully there's not a lot of convincing having to go on because the the, the threats are very real. And I think, you know, unfortunate or fortunate for us that it, it's very publicized as well, that the threats mm-hmm. are real. And and I think what we have to understand is not all SD-WAN solutions are created equally. And, and a lot of them don't have SD-WAN or don't have security. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's either an overlay, it's a bolt-on or, or it's just, you know, foregone. And it's up to the, you know, the customer to try to, you know, layer that on themselves. So I think, you know, for us, we're, we're a security and engineering company first. So we built our SD-WAN is secure SD-WAN. Security always has to be at the cornerstone. Well, Fortinet was the firewall company and the IDS right. and the threat detection. So always had all of that. So Jason, those security features are part of your model as well? We do use UTM. We rely heavily on that. We definitely sleep better at night knowing that's all baked into the product. We have a tremendous degree of confidence in a lot of the things that Courtney just mentioned. Realizing Fortinet was, you know, a security company first. That was one of the primary reasons for going with Fortinet. Jason, it also sounds like uh, you're 
doing an SD branch model where you're also bringing in uh, other Fortinet gear like uh, wireless APs, is that the case? We currently have a wireless AP at each of our stores. We limit the number of SSIDs for security reasons. We have different SSIDs on different VLANs uh, within the store to accomplish different tasks uh, to provide services that we carry in the store with that security focus in mind so that we have purpose-built SSIDs and they have corresponding VLANs for that reason. So it's, it's very well thought out architecture and that's only possible because we can exercise those well thought out ideas with the you know dynamic solutions that come with. So is that all administered from the same console, the SD-WAN and then the branch LAN stuff is all one product. It's not, sometimes what we had in the past was you have the APs are one product and the switches you know, one product and the VPNs are a product and the fire. And then you had this problem where trying to bring it all together into a unified hull was very difficult. Is there some convergence happening there? That's very true, Greg. We do leverage the Forda Manager extensively. We can push out policies, uniform policies to every single store that are the same. Everything from whitelisting and blocking URLs uh, to different network segmentation policies to provide that PCI security and also to keep other PCs from acting as registers when they shouldn't be hmm. because they're not on a PCI segment in our store. So you do really have that unified thing. So you feel like you're in, actually you don't look very stressed. I'm sort of, you're here on video and <laughs> once upon a time when I talk to, to CISOs, you know, people in charge of the network and retail stores, they'd just be sitting there going like, yeah, we know it's not great. But you actually look quite quite relaxed these days. Is that is that a fair statement? I would say I'm slimming a lot better these days, Yes. <laughs> Greg. <laughs> <laughs> I actually think that's a pretty good endorsement, Jason. Yeah, I, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> so Courtney, from the value, when you go out and talk to retailers about the SD branch product, what are some of the key messages that you'd back onto? Like Jason's given you his point of view. What would you pitch to people who are looking at the SD branch? Yeah, I feel like Jason did a pretty good job there. I think, you know, when, when we talk about SD branch, it often boils down to, you know, kind of three core elements of that integration, orchestration, automation. And and as you said, you know, you didn't normally get that in the past. It was, mm-hmm. I got to jump over here for my my switching. I got to jump over here for my APs. I jump mm-hmm. over here for SD. It, it just, it didn't all come together. You know, it's it's almost impossible to manage and, and get sleep at night if you have that point product approach or that or that piecemeal architecture. So I think all of those are extremely important right now. And as we look at retailers today, it's it's about cost efficiencies. It's about technology efficiency. You know, we're always looking to standardize, re- reduce overall risk. I think those are the things that SD Branch, you know, provides. SD Win is all about protecting that experience and making sure that you're getting the best investment from you know from from your transports. But yeah. you know, SD Branch is all about getting the best investment from a long lived investment that is infrastructure. Oh, um, there were so and- many gaps in the old model. You know, you could your wireless APs could be configured one way, and the switches right. were configured in unifying all of that configuration and not leaving any coverage gaps was really difficult. And effectively what you get with the 40 manager is this automation. It all just becomes mm-hmm. one thing. You configure something in the 40 manager and the actual, what goes down into the store is this policy and intent. If you want to use the buzzy wuzzy words and push it in. And then the APs have got this consistent configuration and every single store just like that. And that to me is just like knowing there's no gaps is just a real step forward. I think for most of us. Yeah, I mean, let's get buzzier a little bit, though. I mean, what that allows you to do is it truly allows you to embrace a zero trust methodology, which everybody Mm -hmm. thinks is this scary, scary thing. But when you start to think about your switches, APs, firewalls, SD-WAN, all of that is integrated, it becomes an easier concept to swallow, you know, moving to a zero trust methodology, which is, I think, honestly, where, where everybody should be going. 
Courtney, I'm curious if you're seeing more retailers wanting to provide a wireless experience for their customers. So obviously they need to have all of their, you know, cash registers, points of presence and stuff uh, highly available. But what about that customer in-store experience with a wireless connection? Yeah, I think it's becoming more difficult, you know, with Mac randomization and stuff. But I think, you know, monetizing the the experience, monetizing the data of people, you know, connecting to your wireless network, it's always that nirvana. People want to gain more from that in-store experience. And so whether it's, you know, in-cap mapping or, or heat mapping, they definitely want to make sure that they're putting in the wireless to support business, but they also want to make sure that they're monetizing the data that they get from it. Well, thanks, Jason and Courtney, and thanks to Fortinet for being a sponsor. If you want more information about what you've talked about today, it's a really simple thing to go to, you go to fortinet.com slash product slash SD dash WAN. Check out the product portfolio there. They've got actually some really interesting white papers that really easy to read. The Fortinet portfolio doesn't need, uh, you don't need to be a rocket scientist to dig into it is one of the things uh, because I have to prep for each of these episodes and uh, I do like simple marketing, something that doesn't hide it so much away. As always, you can find this and many more fine free technical podcasts along with our community blog at packetpushes.net. Follow us on Twitter at, at Packet Pushes and you'll get notice up updates and so forth. And we also do the same thing on LinkedIn. And last but never ever least, remember that too much networking, even in a retail shop, would never be enough. <laughs>